0: Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek, uh, 916-633-1537, at gmail.com is the email address, and Ratchet Book Club is where you can find us on Twitter. Really proud of myself, told y'all I wasn't going to cuss in the last episode, and I didn't because it's for the kids, even though I'm loving this book probably more than they did. I don't know. I feel like it will be a, a toss-up between the two of us. Um... Or between all of us. There's probably more than one kid. I don't know. Anyhow. Chapter 16. Maniac McGee was blind. Sort of. Oh, he could see objects, alright. He could see a flying football or a John McNabb fastball better than anybody. He could see Mars Bar's foot sticking out, trying to trip him up as he circled the base for a home run. He could see Mars Bar charging from behind to tackle him, even when he didn't have a football. He could see Mars Bar's bike veering for a nearby puddle to splash water on him. He could see these things, but he couldn't see what they meant. He couldn't see the Mars Bar disliked him, maybe even hated him. When you think about it, it's amazing all the stuff he didn't see. Such as, big kids don't like little kids showing them up. And big kids like it even less if another big kid... Such as hands down, is laughing at them while the little kid is faking them out of their fruit of the looms. And some kids don't like a kid who's different, such as a kid who's lurched to pizza, or a kid who does dishes without being told, or a kid who never watched Saturday morning cartoons, or a kid who's another color. Maniac kept trying, but he still couldn't see it this color business. He didn't figure he was white any more than the East Enders were black. He looked himself over a few times, and he came up with at least seven different shades and colors right there on his own skin. Not one of them being what he would call white, except for his eyeballs, which weren't any whiter than the eyeballs of the kids in the East End. Which was all a big relief to Maniac, finding out he wasn't really white. Because the way he figured... White was about the most boring color of all. But there it was, piling up around him, dislike. Not from everybody, but enough. And Maniac couldn't see it. And then, all of a sudden, he could. Chapter 17 It was a hot day in August. It was so hot that if you stood too long in the vacant lot... The sun bouncing off a chunk of broken glass or metal could fry a patch on your hide. So hot, if you were packing candy, you had soup in your pocket by two o'clock. So hot, the dogs were tripping on their own tongues. And so hot, the fire hydrant of green and chestnut was gushing like Niagara Falls, courtesy of somebody wrenching off the cap. By the time Maniac and the rest of the vacant lot regulars got there, <clears throat> Chestnut and Green was a cross between a block party and a swimming pool. Radios blaring. People blaring. Somebody selling lemonade. Somebody selling Kool-Aid ice cubes on toothpicks. Bodies. Skin. Colors. Water. Gleaming. Buttery. Warm. Cool. Wet. Screaming. Happy. Happy. The younger you were, the fewer clothes you had on. Grown-ups sat on the sidewalk and dangled their bare feet in the running gutters. Teenagers stripped down to bathing suits and cutoffs. Little kids? Underwear. Littlest kids? Nothing. Maniac danced and pranced and screamed with the rest. He learned how to jump in front of the gusher and let it propel him halfway across the street. He joined in a snake dance. He got goofy. He drenched himself in all the wet and warm and happy. When he first heard the voice, he didn't think much of it. Just one voice. One voice in hundreds. But then the other voices were falling away, in bunches, until just this one was left. It was a strange voice, deep and thick and sort of clotted, as though it had to fight its way through a can of worms before coming out. The voice was behind him, calling the same word over and over, calling a name, and even the maniac turned only because he was curious, wondering what everybody was staring at. But when he saw the brown finger pointed at him, not a speck of icing on it, and the brown arm that aimed it, and the brown face behind it, he knew the name coming out of the can of worms' mouth was his. Whitey, and it surprised him that he knew. He just stood there, blinking through a water drop sunblur. the hydrant gusher smacking his thin, bare ankles. The radio, the people, were silent. You move on now, Whitey, the man said. You pick up your gear and move on out. Time to go home now. The man was close enough to be catching some water around his shoes, which, Maniac noticed, were actually slippers. His pants were baggy, and his shirt wasn't really a shirt, but a pajama top covered with high tail roosters. White hair curled around his ears. Maniac gave his answer. I am home. The man took a step closer, dropped his arm. You go on home now, son. Back to your own kind. I seen you at the block party. Now you get going. Maniac stepped out of the gusher. The water roared onto the opposite curb. This is where I live. I live right down there. He pointed toward Sycamore. The man didn't seem to notice. Never enough, is it, Whitey? Just want more and more. Won't even leave us our little water in the street. Come on down to see Bojangles. Come on to the zoo. The monkey house. He must be hard of hearing, Maniac thought. So he called it out really loud and slow and pointed again. I live at 728 Sycamore. I do. The old man stepped closer. You got your own kind. It's how you wanted it. Let's keep it that way. Now move on. Your kind's waiting. He flung his finger westward. Up there. Suddenly, Hester and Lester were by Maniac's side, barking at the man. You leave him alone, old rag picker. You shut up. And the man was croaking, ranting. Not to Maniac, but to the people. What happens when we go over there? Black is black. White is white, the sheep lie not with the lion, the sheep knows his own, his own kind. A woman was rushing in then, pulling him away, up the street. Our own kind! Our own kind! The water thundered across a silent street. Maniac, who was one of the world's great sleepers, Didn't sleep well that night. Or the next. He started getting up earlier than usual. Not to spend some time with the A-book. Just to run. Bow Wow wasn't even ready for his morning pee yet. But he went along. Usually, Maniac just jogged around the East End. Now he did the whole town. Plus over the river to Bridgeport. By the third day, Bow Wow refused to go along. One morning, as Maniac was heading home, Hester and Lester came running up Sycamore. Maniac, come on! We're going to run too! Let's go that way! They tried to turn him around, but he told them to just hold on a minute. He wanted to go home for a quick drink, then he'd go running with them. They kept yelling and tugging and pushing and grabbing his legs. And then Amanda was pedaling frantically up to him, slapping on a quick smile and gasping. Hey, I'm going to the store. You want to come along? Maniac checked the sun. It was hardly up to the second story. Store's not open yet, he said. Amanda just gawked. She was a rotten liar, Maniac knew. He shook loose from the little ones and trotted on. He didn't know what, but something was wrong. The little ones jabbered and screeched and grabbed. He ran faster. Faster. Miss Bill was out front with the yellow bucket. Soap suds spilling over the brim. A stiff bristle brush in her hand. She was scrubbing the house. The brick wall. Scrubbing furiously at the chalk. Grunting with their effort. Her cheeks wet. He had been way too early. Way too fast. Only the F had been scrubbed away. The rest was quite easy to read. The tall yellow letters the same color as the scrub bucket. Ish belly, go home. Just want to stop real quick and say, um, I don't know if kids, well, I know without a shadow of a doubt. I changed my mind. Kids don't know racism until they're taught racism and they're only taught racism by adults because kids can't teach kids about racism because kids don't know about racism. So if you meet a little kid who was racist towards you or a kid who calls you a, a a slur, calls you out your name or something like that, know that they didn't know that until they were taught by somebody else. And a kid teaching a kid teaching a kid that if somebody was taught that by an adult and the adult in this book should have saw that there was a change that was possible in his area, but instead he decided to teach. He decided to teach racism in a situation where they were all learning happiness and acceptance. Like, I know this book. I've read this book. I know what happens in this book. But that old man does not show up in this book again. He never gets a chance to act differently. And maybe, I mean, they said he was an old man and we don't know when this book was written I do know when the book was written. I mean, the book itself was written in 1990, but we don't know what time frame, what era this book was written for, what book this was written, what time frame or era this book was written in. So we don't know what racism was. I know Pennsylvania. I know that there's parts of Pennsylvania where even now there's things that go on, but we don't know when this book was written. We don't know what that old man saw in his life. And there are people who are racist because of experiences that they had where they had nothing to do with it, but they were treated poorly by the other race. So now they are just angry. I honestly don't know if I can say that this dude's a racist or if he's angry because I don't know the time frame and the storyline of this part of the story. My grandmother had a lot of anger towards people because she grew up in Georgia. And she caught a lot of flack. As did my grandfather. But I don't know. They, they were cool with me and my best friends and everybody. But you never know if, you're, if the adults in the area like everybody like you. Or if they just like you. And I wish that they would have given us a chance to learn more about the past of this area or where that dude came from. Because for every what I've learned is that in my experience, there's a background to a lot of reasons why somebody who was bullied is now striking out or somebody who was treated poorly is now striking out. I just wish he hadn't done it to Maniac Maniac is cool as shit. And I wish he hadn't done it at all. Period. Full stop. Chapter 18. Amanda tried to reason with him. You can't listen to that old coot. He's goofy. He's always saying stuff like that. You can't go because of something one nutty old coot says. Maniac pointed out that it wasn't the nutty old coot who chalked up the front of the house. Amanda laughed. That? That's no big deal. It wasn't even paint. If they really meant it, they would have done it in paint. And anyway, don't you know they did my mother a favor? It gave her a chance to get out the old bucket and do some serious scrubbing. Ever since the kids stopped cramming the house, she hasn't known what to do with herself. Now she's happy again. Maniac didn't answer. Amanda didn't understand that most of the hurt he felt was not for himself, but for her and the rest of the family. She stomped her foot. You gotta stay. I don't gotta do anything. If you go, you'll starve. Was I starving before I came here? You'll freeze to death in the winter. Your fingers will get so stiff they'll break off like icicles. I'll go somewhere. Somewhere? Like the deer pen. I'll be okay. Or maybe prairie dog town, huh? How about that? She jabbed him. You could live in a gopher hole. You'd be starving, so that would be perfect, because then you'd be so skinny you could fit right down there all snugly in their little tunnels. He shrugged. Sounds cozy. This was driving Amanda bonkers. He was acting so different, all glum. And wiseacre answers, as if he didn't care, not about nothing. By the way, kids, I'm hip. Wiseacre means smart aleck, sarcastic, jerky. Yeah, she sniffed. Well, what are you going to do for a pillow, huh? I know you put my pillow on the floor. I'll use a hibernating gopher. Funny. And bathroom, huh? Where will you go to the bathroom? The bushes, McDonald's, lots of places. She hated it and answered for everything. And the scariest part was, he was probably right. If anybody could survive on the loose, it would be this kid who showed up from Holidaysburg. Who slept on floors. Who outran dogs. He was making her so mad. She pointed at him. She sneered. Well, I'll tell you one thing, buddy boy. You better shut the door on your way out and lock it. Because if I get my room back, I'm not giving it up again. So don't ever come crawling back around here. She kicked him in a sneaker. You hear? Don't worry. He said flatly. And don't think you're taking any of my books with you this time either. And you can forget about ever. Ever getting a chance to open my encyclopedia A, which I was almost ready to let you do before you went and started acting all poopy. He said, I'll join the library. She jumped up. Ha! You can't. No? No. You need a library card. I'll get one. Ha ha! You can't get a library card without an address. She regretted it as soon as she said it. His head swung. His eyes met hers. His eyes said, Why did you say that? Her eyes couldn't answer. He got up and went out and trotted up the street. Amanda cried. She tore a magazine in half. She punched the sofa. She kicked the easy chair. She kicked Bow Wow bow wow went yelping into the kitchen. See? She yelled at the front door. See what you made me do, Jeffrey McGee? Jeffrey Maniac Crazy Man Bozo McGee? He wasn't back by lunch. He wasn't back by dinner. I'm going looking, Amanda told her worried parents. No one tried to stop her. She rode her bike all over. Easton. Weston. She went over to Bridgeport, practically got herself killed on the bridge. She never peddled so much in her life. She didn't come home until after dark. When her parents headed upstairs to bed, she asked if she could stay up to watch TV. They looked at each other and said okay. She was nodding off in the middle of some late, late movie when the door opened and in he walked. What are you doing up so late? he said I'm incubating an egg she snarled he shrugged and went upstairs she closed her eyes and smiled next morning a little kid from three blocks away came knocking at the front door his yo-yo string had a fat knot in it the size of a mushroom as Amanda watched maniac tackle the knot an idea slithered into her brain When the little kid left with his string good as new, she said, Jeffrey, if I knew some way that would make it okay for you to stay, would you? What do you mean by okay, he said. I mean that even if there's one or two people who aren't too wild about you now, and that's all there really are, that even they would like you. And everybody else who already likes you, they'll like you even more. Purely out of curiosity, Maniac replied, How's all that supposed to happen? Amanda told him about Cobble's Knot. Chapter 19 If the wonders of the world hadn't stopped at 7, Cobble's Knot would have been number 8. Nobody knew how it got there. As the story goes, the original Mr. Cobble wasn't doing too well with the original Cobble's Corner Grocer at the corner of Hector and Birch. In his first two weeks, all he sold was some Quaker Oats and penny candy. Then, one morning, as he unlocked the front door for business, he saw the knot. It was dangling from the flagpole that hung over the big picture window, the one that said Frosted Foods in the icy blue and white letters. He got out a pair of scissors and was just about to snip it off, when he noticed what an unusual and incredible knot it was. And then, he got an idea. He could offer a prize to anyone who untangled the knot. Publicize it. Call the newspaper. Winner's picture on the front page. Cobble's Corner in the background. Business would boom. Well, he went ahead and did it. And if business didn't exactly boom, it must have at least peeped a little. Because eons later, when Maniac McGee came to town, Cobble's Corner was still there. Only now it sold pizza instead of groceries. And the prize was different. It had started out being 60 seconds alone with the candy counter. Now, it was one large pizza per week for a whole year. Which, in time, made the not practically priceless. Which is why, after leaving it outside for a year, Mr. Cobble took it down and kept it in a secret place inside the store and brought it out only to meet a challenger. If you look at old pictures in the Two Mills Times, you see that the knot was about the size and shape of a lopsided volleyball. It was made of string, but it had more contortions, ins and outs, twists and turns and dips and doodles than the brain of Albert Einstein himself. It had defeated all comers for years, including J.J. Thorndike, who grew up to be a magician, and Fingers Holloway, who grew up to be a pickpocket. Hardly a week went by without somebody taking a shot at the knot, and losing. And each loser added to the glory that awaited someone who could untie it. So you see, said Amanda, if you go up there and untie Cobble's knot, which I know you can, you'll get your picture in the paper and you'll be the biggest hero around here ever and nobody will mess with you then. Maniac listened and thought about it and finally gave a little grin. Maybe you're just after the pizza, since you know I can't eat it. Amanda screeched. Jeffrey? The pizza's not the point. She started to hit him. He laughed and grabbed her wrist. And he said, okay. I'll give it a try. Chapter 20 They brought out the knot and hung it from the flagpole. They brought out the official square wooden table for the challenger to stand on. And from the moment Maniac climbed up, you could tell the knot was in big trouble. To the ordinary person, Cobble's knot was about as friendly as a nest of yellow jackets. Besides the tangle itself, there was a weathering of that first year, when the knot hung outside and became hard as a rock. You could barely make out the individual strands. It was grimy, molded, and crusted over. Here and there, a loop stuck out. Maybe big enough to stick your pinky finger through. Pitiful testimony to the challengers who had tried and failed. And there stood Maniac, turning the knot, checking it out. Some say there was a faint grin on his face, kind of playful, as though the knot wasn't his enemy at all, but an old pal just playing a little trick on him. Others say that his mouth was more grim than grin that his eyes lit up like flash bulbs, because he knew he was finally facing a knot that'll stand up and fight, a worthy opponent. He lifted it in his hands to feel the weight of it. He touched it here and touched it there, gently, daintily. He scraped a patch of crust off with his fingernail. He laid his fingertips on it, as though feeling for a pulse. Only a few people were watching at first. And half of them were Hex Angels, a roving tricycle gang of four- and five-year-olds. Most of them had sneaker-laced or yo-yo knots and Tyba Maniac. And they expected this would only take a few seconds longer. When the seconds became minutes, they started to get antsy. And before ten minutes had passed, they were zooming off in search of somebody to terrorize. The rest of the spectators watched Maniac poke and tug and pick at the knot. Never a big pull or yank, just his fingertips touching and grazing and peck pecking away. Like a little bird. What's he doing? Somebody said. What's taking so long? He gonna do it or not. After about an hour, except for a few more finger sized loops, all Maniac had to show for his trouble were the flakes and nut crust that covered the table. He ain't even found the end of the string yet, somebody grumbled. And almost everybody but Amanda took off. Maniac never noticed. He just went on working. By lunchtime, they were all back. And more kept coming. Not only kids, but grown-ups too. Black and white. Because Cobble's Corner was on Hector. And word was racing through the neighborhoods on both the east and west sides of the street. What people saw, they didn't believe. The knot had grown, swelled, exploded. It was a frizzy globe. The newspaper the next day described it as a gigantic hairball. Now, except for a packed in clump at the center, it was practically all loops. You could look through it and see Maniac calmly working on the other side. He found the end! Somebody gasped, and the corner burst into applause. Meanwhile, inside, Cobble's was selling pizza left and right, not to mention Zepp's, which is a two-meal type of hoagie sandwich, steak sandwiches, strombolis, and gallons of soda. Mr. Cobble himself came out to offer Maniac some pizza, which Maniac, of course, politely turned down. He did accept an orange soda, though, and then a little kid whose sneaker laces Maniac had untied many a time, handed up to him a three-pack of Tasty Cake Butterscotch Crimpets. After polishing off the crimpets, Maniac did the last thing anybody expected. He lay down and took a nap right there on the table, the knot hanging above him like a small hairy planet, the mob buzzing all around him. Maniac knew what the rest of them didn't. The hardest part was yet to come. He had to find the right roots to untangle the mess, or it would just close up again like a rock and probably stay that way forever. He would need the touch of a surgeon, the alertness of an owl, the cunning of three foxes, and the foresight of a grandmaster in chess. To accomplish that, he needed to clear his head. Flush away all distractions, especially the memory of the butterscotch crimpets, which had already hooked him. In exactly fifteen minutes, he woke up and started back in. Like some fairy tale tailor, he threaded the end through the maze, dipping and doodling through openings the way he squiggled a football through a defense. As the long August afternoon boiled along, the exploded knot hairball would cave in here, cave in there. It got lumpy, out of shape, saggy. The Times photographer made Starburst with his camera. The people munched on Cobble's pizza and spilled across Hector from sidewalk to sidewalk and said, Ooh, and, Ah. And then, around dinner time, a huge roar went up, a volcano with cheers. Cobble's knot was dead, undone, gone. It was nothing but string. Chapter 21 Bugles, cap guns, sirens, firecrackers, war whoops. Cobble's corner was a madhouse. Traffic had to beep an inch through the mob. Kids cried for autographs. Scraps of paper fluttered down in a shower of homemade confetti. A beaming Mr. Cobble handed up a certificate to Maniac for the year's worth of large pizzas. Maniac accepted it and said his thanks. The undone knot lay in a coiled heap of Maniac's feet. Mr. Cobble grabbed it. Already, people were guessing on how long it was. Side note. It turned out to be four and a half blocks long. Someone tied it to a stop sign and started walking. And that's how far he got before it gave out. The yelling went on and on. The way the yelling does, if only to hear itself. But one person wasn't yelling. Amanda Bill. She was holding one of the homemade confetti scraps gaping at it then she was scrambling across the sidewalk the street shoving people's legs aside grabbing more scraps crying out oh no oh no and then she was running maniac saw he leapt from the table he picked up a scrap that was printing on it about africa he picked up another this one mentioned ants another Aristotle. The Encyclopedia A. He followed the scrap paper trail up Hector and down Sycamore, all the way to the Bills' front steps. The only thing left of the book was a blue and red cover. It looked something like an empty loose leaf binder. Amanda was hunched over, rocking, squeezing it to her chest. It was my fault, she sobbed. I got careless. I left it in the living room. Anyone who could look through the window and, and, she clenched her eyes so tightly it was a wonder the tears got out. More than anything, Maniac wanted to hug Amanda and tell her it was okay. He wanted to go inside, be with his family, in his house, his room, behind his window. But that wasn't the right thing. The right thing was to make sure the bills didn't get hurt anymore. He couldn't keep letting them pay such a price for him. He turned and headed back up Sycamore. Maybe the man with the can of worms' voice was right. Back to your own kind. Back to your own kind. He never got further west than the far curb of Hector Street because McNabb and the culvers were there to meet him, grinning. Leering, hissing. Yo, baby, we hear you got a little pizza prize there. Come on back. We missed you. Been waiting for you. So he turned, started walking north on Hector, right down the middle of the street, right down the invisible chalk line that divided west end from east end. Cars beeped at him. Drivers hollered, but he never flinched. The cubbers kept right along with them on their side of the street. So there were a bunch of East Enders on their side. One of them was Mars Bar. Both sides were calling for him to come over. And then they were calling at each other. Then yelling. Then cursing. But nobody stepped off a curb. Everybody kept moving north. An ugly, snarling black and white escort for the kid in the middle. And that's how it went. Between the curbs, smacked down the center. Maniac McGee walked, not ran, right on out of town. Part 2. Chapter 22. Wait, wait. Who would cut up a book like that? Like, who sees, who would break into somebody's house to steal a book to cut up the book? I think that's a better question. Like, who? I know back in the day, they used to have the cartoons where folks would reach through the window and steal pies out and stuff like that. And it it wasn't funny then either. But who was still in encyclopedia to make confetti? That's messed up. Chapter 22. If you were the baby buffalo at the Elmwood Park Zoo, maybe it would have gone something like this. You wake up. You have breakfast, compliments of mother's milk. You mosey on over to the lean-to. Surprise! A strange new animal in there. Bigger than you, but a lot smaller than mom. Hair, but only on top of his head. Sitting in the straw, munching on a carrot like mom does. Every morning, same thing. You get to expect it. Some mornings, you forget mom's milk and head right on over to the lean-to. The creature offers you a carrot. But all you know how to deal with is milk. You nuzzle the new, funny-smelling, hairy-headed animal. It nuzzles you back. Mom doesn't seem to mind. After the nuzzling, the stranger climbs over the fence and goes away. Not to return until that night. Only, one morning, the stranger falls from the fence and lies on the ground, on the other side. It doesn't move. You try to poke your nose through the chain links. But you can't reach. You can only watch. Only watch. The old man was bumping through the zoo in the park pickup when he spotted the body clumped outside the buffalo pen. He wheeled over, got out. A kid? At first he could only stare. At the body, then at the baby bison, whose large brown eyes seemed to be watching them both. The mother came over lumbering, nodding as if to confirm. A kid. The kid looked terrible. His clothes were scraps, rags. Wherever his body showed through, it was bony and dirty and scratched. The two bison, staring, staring, seemed to say, well, do something. The old man gathered his own bones and muscles the best he could and managed to hoist the kid and get him into the pickup. He laid him on the seat, bent his legs so he could close the door. He knew he should take the kid straight to the hospital, or a doctor, someplace official, someplace right. But the pickup just sort of steered itself back to the bandshell. And there he was, lugging the kid into the baseball equipment room. The season was over by now, but the army green burlap bag still stood ready for the next ump to call, play ball. He yanked out a couple of chest protectors and laid the kid down, careful with his head. At least he was still breathing. Though it wasn't cold, it seemed as if the kid ought to be covered. So the old man took his winter work jacket off the hook and laid it over him. Then he watched and waited. With trembling, dusty fingers, he touched the kid's limp, scrawny hand. He had never held, never really touched the kid's hand before. Hey, the kid's voice was barely a squeak, but it threw him back. He dropped the hand. Where am I? The old man cleared his throat. <clears> throat> the bandshell, the bandshell in the back equipment room. The kid's eyes squinted, blinked, and you what about me? Who are you? Grayson. Grayson. Do I know you? He got up. I guess you do now. He went to his hot plate, heated up some water, and made some chicken noodle cup of soup. He gave it to the kid, who was sitting up now. You want a spoon? He looked as though he could hardly lift the cup. He held it with both hands and gulped it down. Huh? Huh? He said, never mind. You still hungry? The kid flopped back down. A little. Wait here, said Grayson, and left. Ten minutes later, he was back with a Zep, a large. It took the kid less time to polish it off than it had taken Grayson to get it. He told the kid not to eat so fast. He gets sick. The kid nodded. Grayson said, Where'd you get those scratches? Oh, some picker bush. What were you doing there? Hiding. Hiding? From who? Some kids. Where? The kid pointed. Somewhere out there. Some other town. Crosses his legs crisscross applesauce on the chest protector. Can I ask you a favor? Shoot. Can we go somewhere and get some butterscotch crimpets? Grayson squawked. Crimpets? You're still hungry? For them? I am. Grayson threw the greasy Zep wrapper into the wastebasket. Oh no. Maybe you ought to do something for me first. Like what? Like tell me your name. It's Jeffrey McGee. And where you live? Well, I did live on Sycamore Street, 728. Did? I guess I don't anymore. The old man stared. You said Sycamore? Yep. Ain't that the East End? Yep. With his fingernail, he scraped a path of dirt off the kid's forearm. He stared at it. What are you doing? The kid asked. Seeing if you're a white under there. Neither spoke for a while. At last, the kid said, Anything else you want to ask me? The old man shrugged. Guess not. Ah, oh, come on. Don't stop asking. I'm asked out. How about the zoo, huh? Don't you want to know what I was doing at the zoo? At the buffalo pen? The old man sighed. Okay. What? I was living there. With the buffaloes? Yep. With the buffaloes. You like buffaloes? It was dark when I got there. I thought it was a deer pen. They switched the deer and the buffaloes around last month. It's okay with me. I got along better with the buffalos anyway. Well, I'll tell you one thing, the old man sniffed. You sure do smell like one. The kid laughed. They both laughed. And when they finally calmed down, the kid said, Any chance of those crimpets now? Grayson reached for the pickup keys. Let's go. Ah. Uh. I couldn't imagine having to survive in a town where you didn't know why they hated you. They just did. Living off nothing but the scraps that animals ate in the zoo. Always having to be on the move during the day because you couldn't stay in the zoo during the day. What, 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 what they going to do. So you're just walking around aimless. You can't go back to the house that took you in because you feel like you caused him too much pain. You don't know anyone else or anywhere else to go in the town. 916-633-1537 gmail.com is the email address. On Twitter we're ratchet book club and I'm Derek. Thank y'all so much for listening. Please tell your friends. Please leave a review. Um, yeah. I mean, I appreciate both. Thank you again. Y'all be good. I'll talk to you later. Peace. Peace.